Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Reinbarger Operations Against Troops In every instance of systematic American use of psychological warfare against enemy troops during World War II, affirmative results were discerned after the operation had been in effect for a short while. Figure 46 shows the consummation of the troop propaganda program. These Germans are surrendering, and they carry the Allied leaflets with them. By the latter phases of the liberation of France, 90% of the enemy prisoners reported that they had seen or possessed Allied leaflets, and the most famous leaflet of them all, the celebrated Passierschein, see figure 4 came to be as familiar to the Germans as their own paper money. Since every enemy who surrenders is one less man to root out or destroy at a cost of life to one's own side, the sharp upswing of enemy surrenders was a decided military game. Two separate types of psychological reaction are to be sought in the enemy soldier's mind. The first consists of a general lowering of his morale or efficiency, even when he is not in a position to perform any overt act, such as surrendering, which would hurt his side and help ours. This may be called MO, or morale operations. The second type of action is overt action. Surrendering, deserting his post of duty, mutinying, which can be induced only if the appeal is expertly timed. Operations against troops must be based on the objective military situation. Suffering and exertion increase realism. Plain soldiers are not apt to be talked over by propaganda unless the propaganda is carefully cued to their actual situation. All propaganda should be based on fact. Propaganda to troops must be based not merely on fact, but must show shrewd, appreciative touches or understanding the troops' personal conditions. Propaganda is not much use to a nation undergoing abject defeat, for the troops on the victorious side will be buoyed up by the affirmation of victory from their own eyes. Troop propaganda must therefore aim at eventual willing capture of the individual, not at surrender by his individual initiative. He must implant the notion that he may eventually be trapped, and that if that happens, he should give up. The propaganda must not meet the soldier's loyalty in a head-on collision, but must instead give the enemy soldier the opportunity of rationalizing himself out of the obligations of loyalty. True loyalty requires survival and therefore surrender. The steps, therefore, needed for good propaganda to actual combat troops include the following. First, the notion that the enemy soldier may have to surrender as his side loses or retreats. Other named units have surrendered with so and so many men. You will have to, too. Second, themes which make the enemy soldier believe that an all-out effort
is wasted or misapplied. Third, the idea that he or his unit may find themselves in a hopeless situation soon. Fourth, identifying the next authentically bad situation with the hopeless situation. Fifth, concrete instructions for the actual surrender. Figure 52, basic types, troop morale. Leaflets may be aimed at 1. Morale 2. News 3. Action Morale leaflets neither communicate news nor call for specific action. Rather, they pave the way for action. Many of the previous illustrations have been of this type. This one is a troop morale leaflet used by the Puppet Free India Army on their own men who were discouraged by the self-evident lack of material and numbers. Singapore, about 1944. End of figure 52. Morale operations. Morale operations in the black field are, for the American record, still a closed book. German black operations against the French included such enterprises as sending French soldiers letters from their hometowns, telling them that their wives were committing adultery or were infected with venereal diseases, or calling out names and unit designations to French troops facing them in the Maginot Line, or giving away mourning dresses to women who would wear them on the streets of Paris, or intercepting telephone communications in the field and giving confusing or improper orders. Figure 53. Paired Morale Leaflets The Christmas card showing the nativity was dropped by General MacArthur's psychological warfare people on the Filipinos. The Christmas cards with bells were prepared by the Japanese for the U.S. Army. The former were designed to cheer on the Filipinos. The latter to depress the Americans with the defeatist messages inside the cards. End of figure 53. Morale operations on the white side included such items as the following. Sending mournful poetry leaflets to Japanese units which were known to be demoralized for lack of home furlough. China Theater. Dropping beautiful colored pictures of luscious Japanese victuals on starving troops. North Burma. Showing the Japanese sad sack in a cartoon, fighting everywhere while his officers get all the liquor, all the food, all the girls, and all the glory, while the common soldier ends up cremated. Southwest Pacific. Demonstrating that the Nazi pets on the German high command have disrupted the splendid German military tradition and have thrown out the really competent professional generals. Soviet German Front. Penning the nickname Der Sturber, roughly, old let's go get killed, on a German general who had boasted of his willingness to expend personnel. Anglo-American and Soviet radio, telling the German troops that they were dying for a cause already lost, Italy. 
reporting back to the Germans the statements made by prisoners, to the effect they were damned glad that they were out of the fighting. France. Telling the Japanese on Atu and Kiska that just as surely as the kiri leaf, symbol of death, would fall in the autumn, they too would fall. North Pacific. Telling the Japanese homeland and troops that the Japanese emperor had loved peace, but the militarists had dragged the sacred empire into war. Peaceful is mourning in the shrine garden leaflet, designed for Aleutians, used over Japan. Telling the Chinese in China that the Americans would soon cut the Japanese conquered empire in two with Asiatic landings, and then dropping the leaflet, written in simple Chinese, which could be figured out by Japanese, on the Japanese troops. China. Congratulating imaginary agents in ostensible code over the voice radio for the excellent work they have allegedly done in the enemy home country. All theaters. Figure 54. Troop Morale Leaflet. Gray. This German leaflet from the Italian front attempts to remind American troops of the bonus troubles of 1932, a year in which most of the American soldiers were still in school. Only to older men could the appeal carry much weight. The drawing and typography are distinctively German. In terms of source, this leaflet is gray. Figure 55. Chinese Communist Civilian Morale Leaflet. This leaflet attempts to raise peasant morale while calling in general terms for economic action. It shows a peasant family welcoming home the father, who has been made a hero of labor. Given the author by Political Department, Border Area Government, at Yinan in September 1944. Figure 56. General Morale. Matched Themes. The American leaflet and Japanese one both show the same map with the same event. Cutting of the enemy lifeline. In each case, the event is alleged to be news. However, the purpose of the leaflet is to depress the morale of all enemies who see it and to raise the morale of all friends. Figure 57. The Unlucky Japanese Sad Sack. This morale pamphlet was used on the Japanese in the Southwest and Southwest Pacific. While it never produced any startling results on them, it did no harm. The pictures are done by a qualified Japanese artist. The pamphlet tells the story of the Japanese common soldier whose officers get everything and give him nothing except a cremation box and a memorial tablet. End of figures 54 through 57. News leaflets. Figures 1, 7, 59, 60 and 65 are news leaflets. The propaganda purpose is evident, even to the enemy. But in the best of these leaflets, there is a tendency to let the facts speak for themselves, 
and to show the enemy just what the actual situation is. Tactical Defensive Psychological Warfare Morale operations are designed, therefore, to obtain responses other than immediate action. Several possible goals can be sought, singly or jointly. The commonest is preparation of the enemy soldier's mind for the actual physical act of surrender, the moral act of doing no more for his own side. Whenever surrender requires nothing more than passivity, morale leaflets are even more promising. In such cases, all that is asked of the enemy is that he sit tight, fight inefficiently, and put up his hands when he is told to do so. Other purposes of morale operations include the irritation of enemy groups against each other, the general depression of enemy morale, the discouragement of enemy troops, officers, or commanders. Morale operations, to be effective, must be aimed at the actual, specific morale with which they are connected. Well-fed troops cannot be frightened by the remote prospect of starvation. Well-officered troops cannot be induced to mutiny. Troops with good mail service cannot be made homesick. However, weak points in the enemy organization can and do provide targets for morale operations. The defeat situation imposes tremendous strain on both the individual soldier and on officers in position of responsibility. At such times, disunity rises to the surface, rumors spread more readily, and propaganda operations against morale can have devastating effect. Allied psychological warfare against Germans in 1944-45 was aimed both at general officers and at the mass of the German troops, operations against the officers being founded on the common-sense premise that if large-scale German surrenders were sought, they could be best obtained by influencing those Germans who had the authority to surrender. Figure 58. Civilian Personal Mail A common stunt in black or gray morale propaganda is the printing of facsimile personal letters. The letter shown at the left is given in the original German form, along with its English twin, which was, as usual, prepared for administrative clearance, records, and information. Europe, Allied, 1944-45. Figure 59. Basic Types. Newspapers. Newspapers were prepared by almost every belligerent for almost every other. The examples shown above are Luftpost, S-H-A-E-F for Germans, and Rakasan News, USAFPA for Japanese. Each newspaper copies the form of enemy civilian newspapers. The gross circulation of these airborne papers reached in some cases up to the millions. End of figures 58 and 59. A curious point developed. German morale in the higher grades was worse than in the lower. In the very last year of the war, 
Despite the terrible air raids on their homeland behind them, the German troops on the Western Front underwent only slight morale deterioration. In comparison with what they should have undergone, had their morale borne a direct relationship to the strategic position of Germany as a whole. On the other hand, the morale among general officers and staff officers became wretched. The push of the generals the previous summer was merely a foretaste of the demoralization of the German higher command. This unusual situation arose from the fact that the National Socialist propaganda machinery was still working on the masses of the troops. The political officers still made speeches. The troops were given pep talks, information about the war, hopelessly distorted information, but information nonetheless, and promises of privileges and comforts which, while they rarely materialized, were cheering. Simultaneously, German army discipline in the Prussian tradition, never known to be wishy-washy or weak, was sharply stiffened. Furthermore, the plain soldiers carried over to the months of defeat those propaganda attitudes which they had been taught in the pre-war and war years by Hitler's incessant domestic propaganda. Figure 60. Basic Types. Spot News Leaflets. Spot News often makes better propaganda if handled while still fresh than if carried in newspapers or morale leaflets later on. The examples above were used against the Germans. News is given on one side of the leaflet and is dropped while the news is still news. The other side has a propaganda appeal reading. In effect, you must choose for yourself. Die for the party or live for yourself. End of figure 60. In contrast with common troops, the officers had the professional skill to understand the advantages possessed by the Allied armies. The officers knew enough about global and continental strategy, about the immediate strategy of the Western Front, about economic factors and so on, to see that the situation was genuinely bad. Furthermore, the officer class had been less indoctrinated in the first place, many of them having personally despised the Nazis while welcoming Nazism as a means of getting the cattle, the common people, into line behind the Wehrmacht, and those of them concerned with propaganda naturally became critical of all propaganda, including their own governments, and communicated their criticisms to their brother officers. Figure 61 Basic Types Civilian Action Desired civilian action can often be obtained by the use of clear instructions transmitted in leaflet form. This leaflet calls on the people of Alsace, Lorraine, and Luxembourg to stay away from German communication lines, not to work for the Germans, and to make careful notes of atrocities which the Germans may commit. End of Figure 61 German defenses against Allied psychological warfare worked. The German troops fought on when they had no business fighting. 
when their own generals thought it was time to quit and held out only because the SS and Gestapo promised ready death to any high officer who even whispered the word defeat. This German defensive success was based on two factors. One, the good condition of the German troops in terms of food, supply, communications, and weapons. Two, the coordination of all morale services for the purpose of defensive psychological warfare. A common lancer, tough and ready in a whole division full of well-fed, well-armed men, could not be expected to undergo despair because freight car loadings hundreds of miles away had dropped to zero. He might see that the Luftwaffe was less in evidence, he might grumble about mail, or about having to use horse transport, but as long as he could see that his own unit was getting on all right, it was hard to persuade him that the feat was around the corner. In World War I, the German troops at the time of surrender were much better off than most of them thought they were. In World War II, they thought they were better off than they actually were. The Germans may not have been in perfect shape, but they were incomparably better off than the starving scarecrows with whom Generalissimo Chiang was trying to hold back the Japanese in West Hunan or the Americans who had fought despair, fever, and Japanese, all three at once, on Bataan. Along with their relatively good immediate condition, which masked and hid from them the strategic deterioration of the Reich to the rear, the German troops had the services of morale officers who were actually defensive psychological warfare operators. In some units, more on the Eastern Front than the Western, the Germans had PK units, Propaganda Kopemeni, or Propaganda Companies. These were organizationally very interesting. They combined the functions of a combat propaganda company, printing, radio work, interrogation of prisoners, etc., with the job of morale builders. Their services were available not only for use against the enemy, but for aid to the German troops themselves. Since they were currently informed of Allied propaganda lines, they were able to distribute counteracting propaganda at short notice and were even capable, on occasion, of forestalling Allied propaganda themes in advance. Defensive psychological warfare in the Wehrmacht and, so far as it is known from Russian articles and fiction, in the Red Army as well, depended on unit-by-unit unit indoctrination with contempt of the enemy, mistrust of his news facilities, fear of his political aims, and hatred for the whole enemy mentality. Propaganda officers, counter-subversive operatives, public relations men, and information education officers were either in the same office or were in fact the same men. Combination of functions made possible the use of flexible counteracting propaganda. Most of this counteracting propaganda was not counter-propaganda, technically speaking. It was not designed against Allied propaganda, but for German morale. Morale building was not left to occasional recreational facilities, newspapers for troops, 
USO Entertainment, the like, but was compelled through the use of internal espionage, affirmative presentation of the German case, and unified informational operations. This German tactical defensive psychological warfare was neither a total success nor a total failure, insofar as it helped the Wehrmacht hold out, it aided the last-ditch Nazi war effort. Figure 62. Basic Types. Labor Recruitment. On occasion, civilian labor becomes a highly critical factor even in an area of active operations. Leaflets can urge labor to strike against the enemy. They can also induce labor to come over and get to work. This leaflet was dropped on the Burmese, Shans, and Kachins, showing all the good things of life, promising high wages and bonuses, and adding that, anyhow, it was patriotic. Come work for the Allies. End of Figure 62 The American Army did not employ defensive psychological warfare in World War II. Troop indoctrination was extremely spotty. American morale remained good, not because it was made good by professionals who knew their job, but because Providence and the American people have brought up a generation of young men who started out well, and, since the situation never approached hopelessness, kept on going with their spirits high. For the future, the American and British armies faced the problem of devising arrangements whereby within the limits of a free society, soldiers can be affirmatively indoctrinated in the course of operations. USO, Red Cross, public relations, information and education at home, morale staffs in the theaters, armed forces radio service, OWI, the American press, and the overseas military papers. These went their separate and uncorrelated ways without doing any harm last time. If the next war starts, as it may, with an initial interchange of terrifying strategic bombardments, the morale situation may be inherently less healthy. Wise planning would provide, perhaps, a single chain of command for public relations, military propaganda, and morale services, extending this all the way down to the platoon if necessary to make sure that the national line, on any given topic, is explained, presented, repeated, and, if necessary, enforced. Such defensive psychological warfare might work against sensational enemy black operations, against attempted political division, and against fabrication of the news, provided it was carried out in an expert fashion. It could not change morale deterioration resulting from practical deterioration within the troop unit itself, except to decelerate the rate of decline. It would not make up for poor leadership. Nothing makes up for poor leadership. Defensive psychological warfare at higher levels remains a self-contradiction. As pointed out above, page 159, Good psychological warfare is never directed merely against other psychological warfare. It is directed at the mind of the target audience, at creating attitudes of belief or doubt 
which lead to the desired action. Getting and keeping attention is one of its major missions, and psychological warfare which starts by fixing attention on the enemy presentation is doomed from the start. One of the most conspicuous examples of this was President Roosevelt's sensational message of 15 April 1939, addressed personally to the German Chancellor Hitler, asking that Hitler promise not to invade 31 countries which Roosevelt listed by name. Defensive in tone, the message gave Hitler the chance to answer over the German worldwide radio, while his Reichstag laughed its derision in applause. President Roosevelt's message was decent, sane, humane. It was inspiring to the people who already agreed with him, but it created no attitude in the Germans to whom it was addressed. A sharp, bullying, implicitly threatening speech from President Roosevelt might have penetrated the German mentality of the time, even Hitler's. Reasonable reproach did not work. It was not aimed at creating any specific emotional reaction in the German mind. Finally, it must be mentioned that defensive psychological warfare must include counter-subversion and counter-espionage. The Chica, Soviet secret police in its first form, once boasted that capitalist troublemakers and saboteurs could not long function in Russia because the counter-subversive police were over a hundred million strong. What they meant was that they had trained and bullied the population into reporting anyone and everyone who seemed out of line. An attitude of popular cooperation with counter-subversive agencies can be achieved only when those agencies are efficient, respected, and properly presented to the public. Psychological warfare can defend its homeland against enemy operations in kind only if it creates an awareness of propaganda and makes the public critical of attitudes or opinions adverse to national policy. Inexpert official tactics or the general denunciation of dissent makes the citizen believe, with Mr. Bumble and Oliver Twist, that the law is a ass, a idiot. Role of Small Unit Commanders Unless a small unit commander happens to command a unit which includes a psychological warfare team, he will have no active psychological warfare role. Psychological warfare operations require the services of experts, and it will be easy for a small unit commander to jeopardize the propaganda effort of an entire front by well-meant, but ill-conceived, interference in psychological warfare operations. Where the unit does include a psychological warfare team, a duality of control arises. This requires good sense to keep in balance. The commander possesses absolute command and responsibility for the movement, protection, and operations timing of the team which happens to be attached to his unit. He should not presume to interfere in the special propaganda instructions flowing down to the team from superior psychological warfare echelons. Because of the pressing needs of propaganda operatives for news and for order of battle intelligence, it is normally desirable that they have their own signal facilities and that their routine operational communications 
short-circuit normal military channels. Otherwise, the unit's signal facilities will be overloaded with messages important to the psychological warfare team, but useless to the unit as a whole. Such absurdities as the encipherment and decipherment of routine enemy news digests should by all means be avoided. On the other hand, the command and administrative messages should go through normal military channels. In the Galahad operation against the Japanese in North Burma, in which Merrill's marauders participated, such a double set of communications channels took a long time to develop. Where the small unit commander does not possess professionally trained and equipped psychological warfare facilities, he should no more expect to engage in offensive psychological warfare than to undertake chemical warfare with improvised materials. It becomes his responsibility to turn to liaison. Field Liaison One of the new roles developed within the army during World War II was that of Psychological Warfare Liaison Officer. Such men were either commissioned officers, usually of company grade, which had been given appropriate training, or were uniformed civilians detailed from OWI or OSS. It is the job of the liaison officer to become acquainted as far down the echelon of command as may be necessary with the commanders whom he is to serve. He must at the same time retain an intimate knowledge of the personnel, procedures, and facilities of the psychological warfare unit from which he is detached. His position must be compared to that of a salesman, who should know his product, his company, his sales manager, and his customers all equally well. The liaison officer should be able to explain to small unit commanders what psychological warfare can do for them, and he should learn to discriminate between high-priority and low-priority requests for PW materials. For example, a well-trained liaison officer might receive a call from a regimental or battalion commander. He would find that the commander desired leaflets to be used in a particular tactical situation. He should be able to explain what standard ready-prepared leaflets were available, what delay would be involved in making up special leaflets, and what quantities of leaflets would be advisable. Turning back to his home headquarters, he should be able to present the commander's case to the leaflet printers or the public address team, and should help the propaganda people in understanding the commander's problems. End of section 22